Question number one, am I not free? Question number two, am I not an apostle? Now, just to keep you on your toes even further, he's going to answer them in reverse order. So he's going to say, let me address question two first. And in verses one to 18, he'll address, am I not an apostle? And then he'll go on and say, am I not free? So let's read this together. Hopefully that can give you something to keep you uh, your mind in gear. The Apostle Paul writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging a trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Justice that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make any use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself are not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 
They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the price. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, I'm convicted as I hear of this guy who's banged up in jail for eight years for preaching Christ. And it prompts a question in my heart. Would I do it if jail was the consequence? So please help me to preach tonight in a way that it was as if my life depended on it. Help us to listen as though our lives depended on it. And may we then live in a way that the souls of those we meet daily depend on the gospel of Christ. And we read in Jeremiah that you are the God who searches uh, mind and pierces thoughts. So we pray, change our hearts, renew our minds by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, I learned myself a new word. Now that happens frequently, but this time stands out because it was in an unusual setting for an increase in my vocabulary. I found myself sitting in a place called the Buffalo Grill Cafe, which is a greasy spoon calf in North London. And I was sat there with about seven blokes, good mates, and we were tucking into the buffalo breakfast, which is your standard, you know, the sausage and the eggs and the hash browns and the beans and the fried tomato and all the hash browns and the toast and the tea, all that with a layer of grease on top. And it was class, seven blokes having a good Saturday morning fry up. Our error came in that one of the guys who had been invited that time was an Etonian, educated in one of the finest schools of all of Englandshire. And normally where conversation among blokes around a fry-up is more full of grunts than it is words, and if words are involved, they're probably no more than two syllables and maybe five letters. This guy introduced a whole other level into the equation. And it got to one point in the meal where I'd just taken a spoonful of beans... And he threw into the mix, oh, that man is the definition of monomaniacal. (laughs) Now at that point, (laughs) beans hit the specs of the guy opposite me. Monomaniacal? I think we asked him to leave. But as, you know, when you get home, you, you check the definition of things like that. So monomaniacal went into Google, and this is what came up. Noun, monomania. Obsessive enthusiasm for or preoccupation with one thing. So it's a preoccupation and an enthusiasm for one thing. Now I wonder, what is your monomania? What are you obsessed with? Uh, what, are you, what is the one thing that is driving you? If you were to answer the question, I do all of this for the sake of dot, 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 how would you finish the sentence? I do all this for the sake of family, maybe. I do all this for the sake of comfort, uh, money, career, pleasure, fun. What is your dot, dot, dot? What is your monomania? 
What would people describe you as monomaniacal for? It's a good word, isn't it? I challenge you to try and use it by the end of the day. What is your monomania? Paul, the apostle, as he writes 1 Corinthians, reveals himself as a monomaniac. He is all about one thing. His obsession is one thing. His purpose, his priorities are all determined by one thing. Have a look at verse 23. He's not subtle. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Mono, the gospel. Mania, all this for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is not an aimless runner who does not know where the finish line is. He's not a boxer who is just boxing thin air. He knows his target. He is monomaniacal for the sake of the gospel. All this I do for the sake of this one thing. He's like an athlete aimed for his finish line. Now, that that reveals quite an important basic principle for the Christian life. The principle is that the gospel, the cross of Jesus, his resurrection, is not just something that you once put your faith in, but it is something that ought to shape and characterize your entire life. Your whole life ought to be gospel-shaped. So it is not just the key for the door into the Christian life. It is the road upon which you walk. It is not just a way in, it is a way on. It is not just where your eternal dwelling place is guaranteed, but it is actually the source of your everyday decisions. The gospel defines and shapes everything for the Christian. So that you can say, all of this I do for the sake of the gospel. The Christian is a monomaniac according to the Apostle Paul. Now let me try and say something profound. I've never done this before, but I fancy it. Here it is. Number eight comes before number nine. That is really profound and really important when you get to this book of 1 Corinthians. Number eight comes before number nine. In the previous chapter to ours, chapter eight, the Apostle Paul has lambasted this Corinthian church Because their behavior has been such that it has been causing people to stumble and fall short of their salvation. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, could be said the exercise of your rights, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Then in verse 11 he says, So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Here's the situation. The Corinthian church demand their freedom in a way that destroys their family. The demand of freedom at the destruction of family. They have a preoccupation. They have an obsession. They have one thing, but it is actually themselves. It is indulging their bellies for the sake of a meal. That is their one thing. And so the Apostle Paul in chapter 9, which comes after chapter 8, very deliberately sets a contrast. Here they are, demanding their rights at the destruction of a brother. And Paul says, I'm going to set you an example of the gospel that embodies the gospel and shows you all this I do for the sake 
of the gospel. Now we've got a triangle there. I think my standard grade mass tells me it's an isosceles triangle. But we're just going to look at two other verses to make the points of this triangle that will guide us through uh, 1 Corinthians 9. There's our starting point. All this I do for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to see in chapter uh, verse 12, Paul says, we'll put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. And then verse 22, I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. We'll look at these one at a time. First, then 12 verse B. These Corinthians, um, to summarize their arguments in chapter 8, just a recap, so you don't have to listen to Liam's sermon straight away. Their argument is something like this. If in relation to Jesus, I am free, and if in relation to God, idols are nothing, and if in relation to my salvation, food is nothing, then I can eat what I want. They basically say, okay, if Jesus has set me free, if idols don't exist, if food neither brings me closer to God or repels me from him, then I can eat what I want. And so they've written this letter to Paul, which isn't in the attitude of humility saying, dear Mr. Apostle Paul, we'd love to know, can we eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol? Instead, they're saying, arrogantly, why can't we eat food sacrificed to an idol? This is my right and so in reply to this, Paul says, okay, let me, let me lay out my rights. Am I not an apostle? He says in verse 1, am I not an apostle? Do I not have rights? And then he very carefully, very logically lays out his rights. You can see them. Verse 4, don't I have the right to food and drink? Verse 5, don't I have the right to a wife? Verse 6, do, not, do I not have a right to earn my living from the gospel? This is right, food and drink, a wife, and to earn his living from his ministry. He then says, let me show you the foundation of these rights. I'll lay this out for you. What am I building this upon? Well, verse 7, everyday life. A soldier doesn't work at his own expense. A vineyard gets to munch on some grapes, and a shepherd gets to eat, drink some milk. Everyday life tells you that I have rights. Uh, what about verse 8 to 10? Well, my rights are also based on the law of Moses. Don't muzzle, muzzle an ox. Then he says this stuff. Surely he says this for us. It's obvious Moses wasn't writing for an ox. An ox can't read. He's writing for humans, for God's people. And so Paul says, do I not have the right according to not only everyday life, but also God's law? In fact, let's go a step further. This is standard practice in any temple. Verse 13. People who work in the temple get their food from the temple. And then the trump card of all trump cards, verse 14, Jesus says so. See that? Even Jesus says those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So he builds up his rights. He establishes a foundation. And then what does he do? Knocks them down. See in verse 12? But we did not use this right. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights. The only reason he builds them up is so that he might knock them down. And we're saying, Paul, why? Verse 15. 
sorry, verse 12b. On the contrary, we do put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Spot the monomaniac. I have rights, but I will go to the greatest lengths to avoid the smallest hindrance to someone hearing and trusting the gospel. The greatest lengths for the smallest hindrance, he says. Now, Paul was somewhat of an embarrassment to the Corinthian church. We've seen this already as we've tracked through the book. He wasn't the greatest orator or rhetorician compared to some of the people in Corinth. You know, he was a bit of a letdown when you listen to him preach. And so there was a slight embarrassment about it. There's a further embarrassment when he comes to say something like this and he doesn't take any money. Because if you were a teacher, someone that people followed in Corinth, they would receive their pay from kind of uh, well-off donors. Paul, rather than being in the same league as these guys, would spend his Monday to Friday making tents. A menial, working-class job. Again, causing these Corinthians a slight embarrassment as they looked at this you know, humble, weak apostle. Why would Paul do this? Hugely deliberately. Because he's a monomaniac. Why? Because he doesn't want to think anyone to think that he is doing this solely for the money. He is doing this only to obey the commission of the risen Jesus. And so he says, I'll go to the greatest lengths. I will, even though I have rights, I will smash them down that I might offer the gospel free of charge without cost. I have rights, but he says, I've not used them. It is a monomaniac who sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. He says, you know, food and drink, I'll go without it. My relationship status will be determined by the gospel. My employment, what I do, will be determined by the gospel so that there might be no stumbling block, so that I might offer it free of charge. Now, he then asks a second question. Am I not free? That's in verse 1. He comes to answer it in verse 19. He answers it in the affirmative. Yes, though I am free and I belong to no man. Paul knows the gospel. He knows that once he was enslaved to sin. He was a slave in his mind. He was a slave to an eternity of condemnation. He could do nothing but sin as a sinner. And yet Jesus is coming through his cross. He is liberated from his sinful nature as Jesus removed it in his death. And he is liberated to a new free life through the resurrection of Jesus. Paul knows that. So of course he says, I am free. I belong to no man, both in terms of the gospel and because no one is paying me. I'm a tent maker. But spot the but. But I make myself a slave to everyone. Though free, he willingly chooses slavery. In the Greco-Roman world, slavery was nothing. No one would choose slavery. That would be to commit social death. And yet here Paul uses his Christian freedom, his gospel-given, Jesus-given freedom, to make himself a slave slavery for the sake of the gospel. Why, we ask? 
Verse 19. I make myself a slave to win as many as possible. The words repeated, verse 20, to win. Again, to win, verse 21, to win. Verse 22, to win. And then end of 22, that I might save some. He is a slave to save. Spot the monomaniac. I will give up my freedom in the same way that I gave up my rights so that other people might be saved. He's flexible. He's a chameleon. To the Jews, I will become like the Jews. Why? To win them. To the Gentiles, I will become like the Gentiles. Why? To win them. He's a monomaniac for the sake of the gospel. Now, he's not infinitely elastic. That is something important to notice. He's not saying, I'll adapt my message. I'll change what I say. But he's saying, with this gospel, I'm willing to become like all, like everyone I meet for the sake of their salvation. Then he introduces one more category, which I think is meant to be a dagger to the heart of the Corinthians. 22, to the who? To the weak. I became weak to win the weak. Remember our profound statement, eight comes before nine. In chapter eight, you had this Corinthian church standing on their rights to the destruction of the weak. In chapter nine, Paul will become a slave to the weak to win the weak. It is a movement towards weakness. Why does he do that? Because he is an apostle who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the story of the Son of God taking on weakness for the sake of humankind. Jesus, God's only Son, became like you. He became like me, taking sinful, the likeness of sinful flesh. That on the cross he might be made sin to save me. And so Paul, as a follower of this Jesus, his life is characterized by that cross-shaped, by that incarnation of a movement down into slavery and even dying to himself that he might win others. Slavery for the sake of the gospel. He is not constrained by his comfort zone He'll break through that. He is not limited by personal cost. He will incur that. Why? Because he's monomaniacal for the sake of the gospel. Now we need to apply this because Paul is doing something very deliberate in these verses. He sets this up. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. We'll put up with anything rather than hinder it. And I'll do all I can that I might save some. I have three application points for the points of our triangle. First one, a comparison with the Apostle Paul. Paul is very deliberately saying, here is you standing on your rights. Here is me relinquishing my rights. Here is you abusing your freedom. Here is me letting go of my freedom to become a slave. It is no accident that chapter 8 comes next to chapter 9. They're protecting their freedom for the sake of their belly. Paul is giving up his freedom for the sake of their eternal 
salvation. Let me come back to you and ask the question, what is your one thing? What is your obsession? What is your enthusiasm? Is it this gospel? And what does it look like for that to be your obsession? What would it look like if we were to review your calendar for this week? Or your budget for this week? Or maybe your life decisions this week? And to align them with this statement, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. It is sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. I wonder if you can look back and point to something that says, I sacrificed that for the gospel. If you can look to a cost incurred or time given or emotion spent or anything given, sacrificed, Because if you are a follower of Christ, your life will be defined by what? A sacrifice in line with his cross. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. I found an old quote that was in an old Bible of mine. Um, I have no idea who wrote it down. I should have. I'm not very good at footnoting. But this person says, It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We're not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be spent. I wonder if your life is defined by sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. If you were sitting next to the Apostle Paul, how would we be feeling? As he imitates Christ, are we imitating him? But there's not only a comparison with Paul, uh, there comes an invitation from Paul. He lands a job offer almost on your table tonight. Here you go. Slavery. Fancy it? A slave for the sake of the gospel. It's a little bit like in this passage Paul is saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Will, like the Corinthians, it be the indulgence of your own pleasures or comforts or family or career? Or will it be a service, a slavery for the sake of salvation in other people? Will it be like Paul? Will it be like your Savior? And maybe just think of one non-Christian friend that you have, a colleague, a family member. Just think of one. And think through the questions. What would it be like for me to become like them to win them? What would the necessary flex be? What would the deliberate changes need to be? Where do you need to be flexible for the sake of engaging with them? It's a challenge, isn't it? And the challenge becomes greater when we realize Paul says... Everyone, all people. It's not that we get to choose one, but whoever we meet, what is it going to look like to become like them that we might win them for Christ? How can you embody this gospel? How can you incarnate the gospel so that they would see 
what it would look like if the gospel took root in them. It is interesting, I think, in this passage that Paul doesn't then say, after he said, to the weak I became weak, it would seem sensible that he balanced that with, to the strong I became strong. And I think we, we, we would probably err that way, wouldn't we? I'd, be, I'd happily become strong to win the strong. I'd become rich to win the rich. Why doesn't he say that? Because the gospel is a downward movement towards weakness and folly and slavery. Why doesn't he say, to win the rich, I'll become like the rich? Because riches don't model the gospel of a crucified Christ. Why doesn't he say to the strong, become like the strong? Because strength does not model a gospel of the weakness of a crucified Christ. I think one of the rights that we, de- we demand, especially in Edinburgh, is a demand of upward mobility. We think, I deserve this general upward trajectory in my life for my kids, for my family, for my career, for my bank balance, for my car, for my house. I deserve this gradual increase into that postcode, into that bank balance. And actually, the gospel is a movement towards slavery and weakness and folly. It is a downward movement. Uh, David Jackman has a a really helpful little section in his uh, 1 Corinthians commentary. I read this to you because I couldn't say it any better. He says, So often we are tempted to write off such a testimony as Paul's as apostolic extremism. It's just for Paul, it's not for us. We think, to arrive at my life decisions on the basis of how they will help or hinder the progress of the gospel may seem unnecessarily narrow and daunting. What would it mean for me to rearrange my career plans, reassess my use of time, revolutionize my attitude to money? Suppose I might have to give up some things that I really want to do or to buy in order to give myself to a specific work. Or service. Supposing I choose whether or not to move home, where to live, whether or not to work full-time or part-time in paid employment, all on the basis or whether or not these decisions forward or hinder the cause of the gospel. He did not send his only son to die that agonizing death on the cross and to rescue us from sin and hell in order to give us the luxury of being spare-time amateur Christians. This day, whom will you serve? Whom will you follow? Will it be a movement into suffering and into slavery? Or will it be the self-indulgence that characterized the Corinthian church? One final application then, just for the sake of completing our triangle. A comparison with an athlete. These final verses in verse 24 to the end probably bring images of the Olympics, don't they? The dedication, the self-control. It's not always a complimentary comparison when we look at ourselves, is it? And I think that's why Paul puts it in here. I think his thought pattern is that the Corinthians are not being very intentional or disciplined in their approach. I think it's a subtle rebuke. 
I think Paul is saying, do you know what? You are actually these kind of flabby armchair Christians defined by this indulgence rather than this self-restraint. And so Paul lays this comparison before me tonight and before us and says, are you going to go through this rigorous self-discipline that will involve sacrifice and slavery for the sake of the gospel? As I examine my own heart, I think the reasons I shy away from sacrifice and slavery is because I don't think it will be worth it. Paul says, it will. There is an imperishable crown so that suffering is light and momentary compared to the eternity that Jesus has won. Slavery is momentary so that it's not just for the sake of our eternity but for those that we meet, the everyone, the all. Paul was probably thinking about the Isthmian Games when he wrote this, comparable to our Olympics. They competed for a crown that was made up of withered celery. Now, I don't even like fresh celery. And I, I wouldn't compete for a withered celery on my head. But the dedication of an athlete for celery, and even for a gold medal, convicts me as a Christian. I'm competing for something far greater. And Paul says, run to win the prize. And don't indulge yourself that you will be disqualified. So Christian brother or sister in Christ, choose this day whom you will serve. Follow a crucified Savior. It will mean into suffering and sacrifice, and it will mean into slavery. But there is a price that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Let me say a quick word to you if you're not a Christian, if you're here. This is weird. This is new. How would you answer the question, all this I do for the sake of dot, dot, dot? Is it something that ultimately will be like withered celery? It will perish. It will come and it will go. And death will render it meaningless. Hear this gospel of the Son of God who would leave the joys of heaven and come down to become like you. Why? That he might win you, save you. That he might die on a cross to take your sin and to give you this eternal price. It's better than salary. Uh, let's sing as we finish. It, it's, it's a good hymn. It's an old hymn. It's been put to a new, uh, new tune. But it's a, the song, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. I can ask it if we're Christians, we use this as a response tonight. That we say, okay, this is the, the day and tomorrow will be the day. And God willing, all my days will be a day when I follow my Lord Jesus by taking up my cross and following him. So let's stand together and sing this as a response to God's words.